Hello, friends. It's The Way I Heard It, episode number 226. This one is called, We're Not Making the Godfather. We're Not Making the Godfather. My guest on today's podcast is a man called Schnebly, Lindsay Schnebly, to be specific. And he's here today because his name is awesome. How awesome? Well, a few years ago, Lindsay Schnebly sent me a draft of the story you're about to hear. It's a story about his family's name, a name that should be known around the world, but isn't for reasons almost too random to believe. I wanted to discuss with Lindsay Schnebly the power of a name and the randomness of the world we live in, and of course, the business of working in voiceovers. Because while you might not know the Schnebly name, I guarantee you've heard the Schnebly voice from ESPN to Animal Planet, to CNBC, to every other network in between. Lindsay Schnebly has been telling you what to watch, when to watch it, (laughs) what to buy and where to buy it for many years. Because Chuck and I make a living doing the same thing from time to time, our conversation was bound to take a turn in this direction. So if you or anyone you know has ever wondered about a career in voiceover, (laughs) listen up. And if you've ever wondered what's in a name, Consider the true story of the Schneblies and the town that might have been. This is the way I heard it. The Millers just knew that Loring Johnson would be a perfect son-in-law. Bright, handsome, ambitious, and best of all, Methodist. So when Loring proposed to their oldest daughter, the Millers rejoiced because they knew they were getting more than a son-in-law. They were getting a Johnson. T.C. Schnebly, on the other hand, was another story. Like Loring Johnson, Schnebly had fallen for one of the Miller girls. But unlike Johnson, Schnebly was not the kind of son-in-law Phil and Amanda had in mind. You simply can't marry a Schnebly, said Amanda. He's a Presbyterian. Indeed, said Philip. What will the townspeople say? Turns out, The townspeople said quite a bit, and none of it was very nice. Philip Miller's getting 100 son-in-laws, they said. Loring is a one, and Schnebly a double zero. (laughs) Nowadays, true love might be non-denominational, but back in 1901, the Methodists of Gorin, Missouri, found themselves surrounded by encroaching Lutherans, Baptists, Episcopalians, and Presbyterians. So even though their daughter said, I do, the Millers said, we don't and young Mr. Schnebly found himself at odds with his new in-laws. For nearly four years, he tried to win them over, but nothing could assuage their disappointment or temper their disdain. Ultimately, Amanda Miller shunned her own daughter, and the pain and strife became too much to bear. With two small children, the Schneblys yearned for a more peaceful existence. They dreamed of a quiet place, a place of solitude and beauty. But where? One day, T.C. received a letter from his brother, raving about a faraway place of unsurpassed tranquility. Ellsworth Schnebly was a frail man and required a climate that suited his weak constitution. Apparently, he'd found it in a lush, verdant canyon in the high desert with clean air and a fast-running mountain brook surrounded by breathtaking buttes and monoliths. The Schneblys fled Gorin with all due speed. After connecting with Ellsworth, T.C. homesteaded 80 pristine acres and quickly fell in love. There was something magnetic about the place, something magical about the way the canyon glowed in the evening sun. The Schneblys built a stone house nestled in a grove of cottonwoods, tucked into the gentle bend of a winding creek. And that's not all they built. You see, the Schneblys believed that others would be equally enchanted by the strange beauty of their new surroundings. So T.C. built a ten-room way station in the middle of nowhere. His neighbors might have called him crazy, but T.C. didn't have any. So he built a road that ran all the way to Flagstaff. And sure enough, the people started to come. They came for dinner and stayed for the night, luxuriating in the tranquility of the quiet canyon and marveling at the serenity. One day, it occurred to T.C. that his guests might extend their stay if they could send and receive mail from his little bed and breakfast. So T.C. applied for a post office permit. After many weeks, 
TC got a response from Washington, D.C. Dear Mr. Schnebly, We're happy to help you set up a post office in your home, but regret to inform you that Schnebly Station is too large to fit in the cancellation stamp. Please select a shorter name for consideration. T.C. read the letter to Ellsworth. His brother said, Why not name the post office after your wife? T.C. turned to his wife and said, How would you like a post office named after you, dear? Mrs. Schnebly smiled as T.C. wrote her first name into the space provided, and a few weeks later, the tiny desert community in the middle of nowhere had its very own post office, named after the wife of Theodore Carlton Schnebly, a young woman ostracized by her own mother and driven from her home by the kind of discord and strife that can only result from marrying a Presbyterian. It's ironic because the town that eventually grew up around Schnebly's little bed and breakfast would adopt that very same name, a name now synonymous with tranquility, peace, and spiritual healing. It's enough to make you wonder if the U.S. Post Office had used a smaller font back in 1902, would the people be traveling from all over the world to experience the strange and abiding peace of Schnebly Station? Or if the Millers had welcomed T.C. into their family all those years ago, would people today be talking about the mystical wonders of magnetic vortexes that still surround the Schnebly home? We'll never know for sure, because today... Those who seek enlightenment and the metaphysical glow of those now famous red rocks do so in a town whose name was concocted by a mother who pulled six letters from thin air and gave them to a daughter she would ultimately disown, a daughter named Sedona. Oh, and one more thing. On the subject of irony, remember Loring Johnson, the perfect son-in-law who pleased the Millers with every word and deed? Yeah. He went to Leavenworth. The details of his incarceration are inconsequential, but he died in custody, bringing great shame to Millers, Methodists, and Johnsons everywhere. And that's the way I heard it. If this doesn't turn out to be the best sounding podcast in the history of the way I heard it, then I'm going to be horsewhipped with a horsewhip. Lindsay, what kind of microphone is that? That would be your uh, studio standard Sennheiser 416 shotgun mic. My God, you really bring it to life. And Chuck, you're uh, relying on the old standby with my old pink windsock on it. Is that right? Yeah, I inherited that. Uh, I lost my black one and I was at your place and you had a drawer full of them. It looked like a drawer full of clown noses of various colors. And, and I said, which one can I have? And you said, oh, no, you can only have the pink one. So. How do you lose a windsock, by the way? <laughs> I was I mean, minding I, my I, own I, business. <laughs> An unexpected breeze sudden, kicked up out of the north and my windsock is gone. Just like that. Somebody just was in desperate need of a windsock. I have and, been uh, doing this know. for uh, almost 30 years and I think I have never lost a windscreen in my entire career. <laughs> Like, right. Well, I travel. Under what circumstances does one, does a windscreen go missing? Yeah. All right. It's very strange. Let me just say, I take my microphone with me when I travel because I work on the road as well. Right? Mm. And I don't. Yeah. I actually got stopped at the TSA airport check in Tucson years ago with this microphone because they thought it was a silencer. And, uh... (laughs) I had to explain what was going on, and I said offhandedly, you know, it's funny, I I didn't have any trouble flying in here at the TSA check, and they said, well, where did you fly from? LAX? (laughs) Yeah, LAX. (laughs) Right. Here in Tucson, we know our security, pal. Skip your little rinky-dink LAX airport. This is where the big boys play. I hope you explain to them, look, it's not a silencer, it's a shotgun, and then everything was okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a shotgun. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. All right, right this way, sir. Nothing to We upgraded here. you to first. The point is, for the first time in the history of this podcast, everybody has a professional or a semi-professional microphone, which we're using. And, we'll see if and all content. of us... We'll see if the content matches the technology. No guarantees. But aside from the technology, you are also listening to, dare I say it, three professional voiceover artists who are prepared to have a wide-ranging conversation, not only on the origin 
of the Schneebly name. But mm. what I want to do with you, Lindsay, today, if time permits, I want you to help me answer the question I've been getting every single day for the last 20 years, which is not, believe it or not, what's your dirtiest job? It's, I've been told I have a nice voice and I'd like to work in voiceovers. Where do I sign? <laughs> because yeah, and I would say this... don't. <clears throat> yeah, don't do it. Spare I yourself. I would say just don't, just don't do it. It's ridiculously competitive and it's gone through so much metamorphosis in the past five years alone that I would say... Uh, Save yourself. Yeah, think about almost any other thing you want to do <laughs> than get into voiceover. <laughs> and in all seriousness, the whole idea of you have an announcer voice, which used to be sort of one of the first things you needed, that is yeah. so, so Opposite done. Passe, yeah. If I read 40 pieces of copy a week from auditions, 38 of them will say non-announcery. Yeah. No announce. Casual. Sound like the guy next door. So Throw it away. One. Yeah. Street. My favorite cliche is like you're talking to your best friend over the back fence. You know? But what if your best friend over the back fence is an announcer? Right? What if you live next to Gary Olson? <laughs> That'd right? be what pretty you... cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> hey Frank, how That'd are you this fun. morning? <laughs> I'm well. How I'm are well, you? Thanks and you not Mike? so bad, all things considered. <laughs> hey, how about those O's? Quite a game last night, no? <laughs> I'll tell you what, real nail-biter. All right, so before we peel the onion back on all things voiceover, you have the greatest name in the history of names. I only say it because it's true. Chuck, you'll verify this in passing. It was almost a parenthetical one day. I was having lunch, he said, with my friend Lindsay Schnebley, and the waiter <laughs> came over, and I said, hey, stop. Who? Who? Let's back up. Lindsay Schnebley. How long have you known her? It's a boy. Huh. Called Lindsay. Yeah. And the last name is Schnebley. Really? Schnebley. Huh. Yeah. And ever since, I've been kind of interested in you, your name, your family, your career. And when you wrote the original draft of the story we just listened to, my friend, I was tickled as pink as the windsock on Chuck's microphone. <laughs> well, I'll tell you who else is fascinated by my name to the point where he refers to me as Lindsay Effing Schnebley. <laughs> and that yes. is um, a dear friend of a dear friend named Jimmy Kimmel, um, <laughs> who's apparently just fascinated by my name. So I'm one handshake away from Jimmy. Who's the friend in between? My good Paul? friend, John Elliott. Worked oh, in radio. John Effing Elliot, sure. John Effing Elliot, you've heard of him. <laughs> it's a very convoluted story, but I turned down a job in radio with John in Tucson to stay at Disney. And in doing so, John ended up moving to other partners who ultimately included Jimmy Kimmel. So my standing joke is Jimmy Kimmel stole my career. I should have my own. ABC Late Night Show, and Jimmy stole it. Well, it's not a joke, man. Theft by stealing is the underlying theme in this Of broadcasting entire... in general, right? Good God. Greg Kinnear stole my career first, and then right. Craig Kilborn stole it, son of a bitch. And then Jon Stewart came along, robbed me of that job, and so forth and so on. Yeah. But way leads on to way, and none of them are joining us today in this riveting free. Well, let's focus on the positive. So the it's, just, it's, yeah. it's the three of yeah. us. They yes. were not invited, and we were. Let's go honor. back to your grandmother. Sedona, that reveal was the first story we did, I think, where the reveal was not necessarily a person, although obviously it was. She was your grandmom. It was a town. Great-grandmother. Your great-grandmother. Great-grandmother, So yeah. you probably never met her. I did not. Again, I am one handshake away from Jimmy Kimmel and Sedona <laughs> Schneebly. <laughs> And maybe the only person in America who can say that, now that I think Clearly. about it. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. A sentence, no, he... I dare say, has never been uttered. No doubt. <laughs> Sedona died in 1950, so I did not meet her. But my father and both of my aunts grew up with her in Sedona and had many stories and memories and have photos from childhood. And, you know, it, it's interesting. We would go there as kids on summer vacation to Sedona, Arizona, but it was nothing like it has become now. 
as mm. big, as commercial, as trippy, artistic, trippy. There was none of that vortex stuff swirling around at all when we were going there as kids. It was a very different experience. Interesting. Chuck, have you been? I have not. Been to Phoenix quite a few times. My dad used to live there. Yeah. Never and aside from the fact that those two towns are in the same state, there's absolutely nothing in common. <laughs> Sedona is... I like the word Phoenix, <laughs> so I just like to say it whenever yeah. I can. Like a career rising from no the ashes. Reason to. A couple of years ago, I was in Sedona with my sister, Lisa, and my dad, Larry. Larry is Sedona's grandson. We go for a hike one morning, and we're hiking along Highway 89A, and there's a giant tour bus going down, and they're explaining the, uh, you know, this is a location where such and such was filmed, and they're passing by us by like 15 feet. And I said to my dad and sister, it would be so much more interesting if the tour bus driver knew that Sedona's (laughs) grandson is over there in the gray sweats on that bridge rather than, you know... Yeah, This film was made in 1923. It was an odd sort of, uh, if you guys only knew the history, you just drove by. Yeah. The other reason I love this story so much, first and foremost, I just love the idea that families going back a couple generations have this kind of inevitable nexus of, you know, crossings and ironies and coincidences and all of those things that nobody's aware of when they're happening. But years later, Sedona was the first town I ever shot in when I began to impersonate a host in earnest after oh, really? being okay. fired. Yeah. I didn't know well, that. you know, I didn't really put the pieces together either until I read your story. But when I was fired for the final time from QVC, I embarked on this <laughs> sort of quest to like try and be this host in nonfiction. And the first show I worked on was called Romantic Escapes. And the first place we went was Sedona. And I didn't know it existed. I'd never heard of it. I wasn't sure where it was. I knew the rocks were red. But everybody I met there was there to sit in the springs and experience the vortexes or the vorces or whatever they were. And I just thought, man, if the country is as weird as this... (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a fun career bouncing around. but <laughs> And it seems to be working it's out. It's a cool little town. And it, when was the last time you went? What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I was there, I believe it was three years ago. Every time I go, I'm amazed at how much bigger it is, how much more traffic there is. It would be a challenging place to live. And I've actually contemplated looking at retirement homes there but am really sobered by the amount of traffic that it has to deal with. The amount of time it can take you to get from one place to the other can be hours. And you say this as a guy who lives in Los Angeles. I was going to say, and having lived in Los Angeles for 30 years now, if you go to Sedona and bitch about the traffic, you know things have got to be pretty bad. (laughs) Boy, I wish I was back on the 101 in Los Angeles. Now there's a free one. Yeah. (laughs) Give me a Thomas guide where a man can... Stretch out and be free. (laughs) If it's hard to live in Sedona today, though, what must it have been like for your great-grandmother? That's what I want to get at. Your people left, what was it, Missouri, back in the early 1900s. Could not have been easy. Gorin, right. Yeah. The stories that my dad has and that other people tell about the first place that Sedona and TC lived, Sedona going down to Oak Creek, to do laundry, to launder the bed sheets in a creek lined with red dirt and lye and soap and managing to get the laundry the whitest my dad ever saw growing up in that kind of environment is just amazing to me. The cliche of pioneer spirit and no running water, outhouses, electricity is a luxury, To think that it began like that and is what it is now, full of resorts 
and pink Jeep tours and that it's become the place that it has is really amazing because what they started with, with 80 acres on that creek, which would now be worth so much money that if they'd kept it, I probably wouldn't be talking to the likes of you two. (laughs) (laughs) Not with that crappy microphone, you wouldn't. And my missing windscreen. It's amazing to me that they had that kind of land and eventually it all got, you know, sold off, but that it turned into what it did, that it started as something so simple as let's build a bed and breakfast. Hey, if we get a post office, people will stay here longer. And the name, as you pointed out in the podcast, was completely made up when people say, you know, Sedona is actually anodes spelled backward and it's all part of this conspiracy. It's kind of (laughs) comical. I haven't heard that. Sedona is anodes spelled backwards. That's the real reason it's the vortex. You know, it's aliens set the whole thing up eons ago. And it's, I got to have a conversation with my father's aunt. So I guess that would be my great aunt, Clara, who was the youngest of Sedona and TC's six. I'm sorry. She was the fifth of the sixth kids. This would have been 1993, just Mm -hmm. a few years before she died. And I asked her, what do you think Sedona and TC would have thought about the town of Sedona becoming known as such a spiritual center? And she said, I think Sedona would have just laughed it off because it was always a beautiful place. And as you described, the sunsets and the red rocks, it is a surreal place to this day. When you drive into it, to see that red rock starting to crop up is really amazing. I said, would she have been angered by it? And she said, no, not at all. She would have found it kind of laughable. Now, TC, Sedona's husband, would have argued with people who Mm -hmm. argued for the spiritual vortex, not because he disagreed, but TC really loved an argument. He would just love to take the other side of an argument. So he would probably have bantered with these strangers for a couple of hours, not because he cared, but because he loved taking the opposite point of view. He was probably desperate to (laughs) talk to somebody. Because there weren't a lot of people there when they incorporated in 1902. It was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. I think my favorite part in this story if I can throw my arm out of whack, pat myself on the back for a moment, because I just listened to it again. It kind of comes down to the font size that the post office was using. <laughs> yeah. Right? Had they gone with like a Helvetica 10 instead of a Times New Roman right. 12 or 14, Schnebly Station yeah. made it very yeah. well fit. And people would be coming from all over the world to bask in the healing <clears throat> mystical powers of... <laughs> Schnebly Town or whatever, which would have been amazing. Certainly, Sedona is a much prettier name than than Schnebly. I'd be the first to say that. It was apparently uh, Schnebly Station and Oak Creek Crossing were both rejected because they didn't fit in the cancellation stamp. And so, as you said, as the story goes, Ellsworth (laughs) says to his brother, T.C., what if you named it after your wife? T.C. turns to Sedona and says, how'd you like a post office named after you? She kind of laughs like, oh, you two, you two and your cancellation stamps and walks out. And a few weeks later, they get the certificate for the, you know, congratulations, you now have a post office named Sedona. That's just so awesome. On the one hand, it's a little tiny thing. On the other hand, I don't know why it tickles me to learn about the way a town becomes a town. I mean, Baltimore probably has its own story and so does Cleveland and walk it back far enough. But here you sit a descendant of the reason millions of people from around the world not only go to Sedona, Linz, but like Machu Picchu for the same reasons, right? These magnetic vortexes and so forth. Whatever. I mean, but I hope TC's laughing from beyond the grave along with his wife. I find the whole thing It's pretty interesting. And like you could say, I guess, about any kind of faith or organized religion, if it works for you, God bless. If you feel a spiritual energy in the Red Rocks of Sedona, then I wish you only the best. I want you to enjoy it. And who knows? Maybe Sedona and TC reacted when they got there because there was something there, that they both felt a sense of inner peace that they'd never felt before because, indeed, there is a spiritual energy there that occurs only a few places on Earth. Who am I to say? Yeah. Who am I to disagree either? At some point, you need to draw a line between the ephemeral spiritual energies that may or may not impact an individual and say something like gravity, (laughs) which is going to affect you whether you believe it or not. Yeah. (laughs) And and 
<laughs> right? Inertia, centripetal sure. force, these sorts of things. They don't care right. if you believe in them. But I'm always amazed by the places and the ideas that are contingent yeah, on yeah. your own. As you said, maybe it's faith, maybe it's hope, you know, maybe it's open-mindedness, or maybe it's just mind-numbing naivete. We don't know. But it sure is fun to talk about in ways exactly. that gravity doesn't exactly. allow. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating, it's a very unpredictable outcome. And considering that the relationship itself between TC and Sedona was so frowned upon back in Gorin, Missouri, that uh, Sedona married the loser. Mm. She's not nearly as attractive as her sister Lily, who ends up uh, Lily Johnson uh, was it Miller ends up marrying Loring Johnson. And Lily and Loring are the right. king and queen of Gorin. They're the, the magic couple who can do no wrong. They're gorgeous. <laughs> and Sedona marries this schlub TC. And after enough time, it's like, you know, this isn't really a very hospitable place. And Ellsworth, TC's brother, sends word from Oak Creek Canyon saying, you guys got to get out here. This place is unbelievable. And they figure, what the heck? It's got to be better than this. And they move out and fall in love with it. And TC built this road that is to this day called Schnebly Hill Road. It was the first road from Sedona to the highway that leads to Flagstaff. The construction of that road allows you now to get to Flagstaff in one day instead of four days and really becomes a lifeline and improves the quality of life in Sedona. People can get to and from Sedona much faster now, and, you know, in 25% of the time. Do you think there's anything to the theory, and I say the theory as if this is an actual <laughs> established theory, this is just my personal belief, that a person's name can affirmatively impact the, I don't want to say destiny, because that's a very Sedona-type thing to say, but trajectory, right? Like, my name for roughly 24 hours was Zach, and my mother changed her mind, and I became Mike. And I wonder if we'd be sitting here having this conversation had I spent the last 50-some years hmm. as a Zach, or if you weren't a Schnebly, or if Chuck weren't a Klausmeier. What do our names ultimately do to our futures, and I wonder if there's some similar query regarding places. That's a really interesting point. I think that names are certainly... Is it? <laughs> I do. I think so. <laughs> hey, it was interesting. And it was posed in a crisp, well-modulated baritone. No I'll be not into a Sennheiser no 416. I've heard people say the most attractive sound in the world is your own name, that you react to your own name in the way you mm -hmm. react to nothing else. And so I think it could very well be that one's name subconsciously impacts the way you think about yourself. So, yeah, I'd never thought about that, but that might be onto something. I have to say, I worked for many years when I was at Disney with a guy named Scott Swan, and I always admired the fact that Scott could meet somebody and shake their hand and say, hi, Scott Swan, and they got his name. And then it's, hi, I'm Lindsay Schnebly. What? Right. Leslie Schnell, Lindsay. Come again? Linz, Linz, <laughs> Schnebley, S, what, what? Can I talk to... Yeah, but what if you get saddled with a name like uh, Buster Hyman? That's got to be just... <laughs> That's... Rusty Pipes yeah, Rusty. certainly sticks. Although in my line of work, Rusty Pipes might have actually yeah. been better than Lindsay Schnebley. <laughs> <laughs> I actually met a plumber called Rusty Pipes, believe, believe it or not. It. I forget there's a word when your name really lines up either to where you live or what you do. There's some word for that. I've got remember. a videographer friend whose name is Trent Kammerman, K-A-M-E-R-M-A-N. No joke. <laughs> well, there Sometimes it is. your name is destiny. He had no choice. <laughs> yeah. His mom said once upon a time, Trent, honey, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, take a wild freaking guess, mom. It's not a plumber. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I was thinking maybe, I don't know, a cameraman. <laughs> We can go with Shakespeare or Rose by any other name. Surely smell is sweet. We can go with Johnny Cash and ruminate on a boy mm -hmm. named Sue. You go with Bernstein and do a little dance around the most beautiful sound I ever heard, Maria. So it's like the most beautiful sound I ever heard, Esmeralda. Right. Not going to work. <laughs> a boy named Frank, that's not a song. Right. That's just a guy named Frank. So are you the person you are today? And I say this neither as a insult or a compliment, just an observation. 
because you're a schnebly. And I'm just talking about the name, the sound of the name. Did it make you stronger than you otherwise might have been? Did it make you more dogged? Are you more, I don't know, defensive, argumentative? Did it have any impact I'm at all? I'm amazed that at this point in my life, this is the first time anyone has ever asked me that question, that I've never thought about that. <laughs> well, you know, as a fake journalist, part of my job, Linz, is to come at the hard-hitting topics It's a fantastic relentless. question, though. And you really do sell it, too. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> I, I really I, believe you're interested to all know I the have. answer. I am. Okay. I still wonder if I should have changed when I moved out here, just for professional purposes. I had been in broadcasting in radio and television in Arizona, where my father and my sister were already on air, and so there was a certain familiarity with the name when I was there. But mm -hmm. in hindsight, I don't know. I'll probably never know if I should have changed it when I moved out here. I'm the same way. I, so I, there were a lot of people who wanted me to change my name, casting people. You did briefly, didn't well, you? Well, yeah. I took Fred King's last name for the first film yeah. that I did. But, yeah, uh, Charles King. Yeah, but ultimately, I felt too bad for my dad. I was like, I can't not have... Mm. You know what I mean, it's just... That's so interesting. Yeah, I would have too. Yeah, but it's a mouthful, Klaus Meyer. It is. There's the whole business of the stage name. We've talked around that a lot, and I think most people understand that a lot of famous people change their name, but I'm still stuck on the idea as a vacation destination, as a mystical place on the globe where certain things are happening within the rocks that many people truly believe is transformational. Does Sedona, Arizona still get the same traffic as <laughs> Snebly Station? <laughs> like if Machu Picchu, you know, Kevin. were called Tallahassee, the Burble Flock. <laughs> Tallahassee, I, I don't know. <laughs> I really just, I just don't know. I and don't know either, but about. I suspect that Schneebly Station would not be nearly the tourist destination today that Sedona, Arizona is. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is the point. Yeah. This is why your story was so interesting to me, because while I can't prove any of it, it seems reasonable to assume that Marion Morrison would have had much tougher time in the pictures no than John Wayne. Yep. And that Schnebly Station might have been a tougher sell for the tourism bureau. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even Oak Creek Crossing Sedona. has a rustic... I mean, there's a visual to that oh, that sure. would probably be as popular as Sedona. Schnebly is not at all an attractive name. I, I got to tell you, man, from the minute I met you, when you first told me your name, I was like, damn, that is a mighty fine name. <laughs> I like it. Dude. Well. I did too. Really? But not because it's inherently beautiful, because it's indisputably unique. It is. I'll give you that. We're talking now because of mm -hmm. your name, honestly. We certainly wouldn't have had a story to write about right. but for your name. But the first time your name came up in a VO conversation with Chuck, like I said, I had to go back. It was the name that made me say, say what? Yeah. Before we go to more VO crap, did I get anything wrong in the story? And what did your family say about it when it dropped? Was this basically a good thing? It's interesting I because I remember actually as a kid, my dad getting a phone call or a letter from Paul Harvey's son when Paul Harvey was still doing the rest of the story. And his son was, as I remember it, I think I'm remembering it right, his son was kind of writing and producing for his dad at that point and wanted right. to clarify some things. And I remember listening with my dad to Paul Harvey tell essentially the same story about how Sedona came to be. So, yeah, I mean, people listened. They liked it. You were pretty spot on. It's a surprisingly cut and dried story with just the oddest twist, particularly at the very end when you consider that the golden boy ends up dying in Leavenworth having built TC out of, you know, TC's money back in Goring. They leave Sedona yeah. after the death of their daughter, Pearl. Life is just awful. And the doctor in Sedona, family friend, says to TC, you either have to take Sedona, the woman, back to Missouri or you're going to lose her because there's just too many bad, there's too much pain here at the loss of their daughter. They end up going back to Gorin wow. and 
Loring says to TC, hey, let's go into business together. I'm starting this menswear store. They become business partners. And after, I want to say, three, four months, Loring leaves with all the money and bilks TC out of his life savings and then ends up, you know, call it karma, call it what you wish, ends up dying in Leavenworth. In Leavenworth. So then they moved to Colorado and ultimately moved back to Sedona in the 30s where they lived for another 20 years and really enjoyed the last 20 years of their life in the town that they had helped to build. There's so many remarkable things you just hit me with. First of all, sidebar, what did Loring Johnson was he in jail because he built TC, or did he do some other? No, I, I should know that, and I don't know. Something tells me that it has something to do with some kind of tax thing, maybe tax evasion. I'm not sure. That's how they always get you. Sounds like a typical Johnson <laughs> thing it? to do. Yeah, Johnson and Capone. Methodists. Typical. Johnson. He was no Presbyterian. Speaking of that, that. <laughs> when uh, my wife and I got married, she calls, I don't remember who it was, maybe like a credit card company. Her maiden name was Johnson, Nancy Johnson. So she calls the credit card companies and mm-hmm. says, I need to change my credit card. I'm getting married next month. Da, da, da. The woman says, what's your new last name going to be? And she says, Schnebly. There's just a pause. And the, uh, <laughs> the woman just says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy said, yeah, yeah, I know. It's, you know, it's, it's a package deal. I really love him. <laughs> you better. Saddle myself with this odd name for the rest of my life. Well, Bless she chose wisely, obviously. Enough with all of this. The story was good. I've officially thank you for bringing it to our attention. Oh, I can't believe Paul Harvey Jr. reached out about this. Chuck, yeah, you buried the lead if you knew that. I didn't know. I did not know that. Yeah. I don't remember you ever You know what? I that don't either. remember if I brought it up or not. Did it's not, not an everyday conversation kind of thing. I feel like I would have well, remembered it. Well, the reason he yeah. would have remembered it, Linz, is because this whole podcast was inspired by Paul Harvey Sr. This entire, the way I heard it thing, mm-hmm. was my take on the rest of the story. And when it wound up becoming a podcast and then a book, I was nervous because, well, I'd been talking a lot about Paul Harvey's impact on it. And one day we got this letter, this registered mail letter from Paul Harvey Jr. And you thought, here's a, here's a cease and desist? <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. I mean, don't open it. I said, send it back. You know, yeah. this is awful. Tell him I'm the, not the, here. the whole thing's going to come crashing down. Nobody here by that name. <laughs> send it to Schnebly. Let him deal with it. But I opened it, and inside was a very generous check to the Microworks Foundation with a nice letter saying, honestly, it took my breath away. To hear from the man who wrote most of the stories that his dad related, that was some high cotton. And to sit here now and hear you tell me that this very story was something that Junior had bounced around, I can't tell you how many times these weird little serendipitous connections Mm -hmm. have happened in the course of these conversations. But damn, Chuck, that's another one. Aren't you glad you hired Chuck? Yeah. Yeah, we're still trying to get Paul (laughs) Harvey Jr. Technically, I didn't hire him. He's working off an old debt. And um, there's no real end in sight. Yeah, they did away with debtor's prison. He got sentenced to 20 years of the way I heard it. (laughs) Talk about hard time. You must use a pink windscreen for the rest of your professional life. Uh Uh, Good Lord. Which brings us back to the vocation, Lindsay. I seriously do want to pick your brain a little bit because we all do this. Chuck does this for a living and has for over 30 years. He teaches voiceover. You've been at it for at least as long. Me too, in my own way. Something tells me you were being serious earlier when somebody does ask you for advice. Do you seriously look them in the eye, as I so often do, and say, don't do this? Save yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that's always my first reaction. If it's somebody that has quit their job in Wichita, moved to L.A., and they've already made some inroads, they're taking classes, they're working on a demo, things like that, they've clearly committed to it, I'm not going to say, boy, I think that was a pretty stupid mistake. (laughs) I would say, oh, you know, good for you. Yeah, (laughs) takes a lot of work. 
I think it's very similar. I mean, I know, as you guys both do, a number of actors and actresses. And I think universally, one of the biggest fears of said actors and actresses is that their kids are going to want to follow in their footsteps. That they so frequently mm-hmm. say, really, really, you don't want to do this for a living. It's a tough way to make a living. And that's true. It's true. But clearly, some people have a passion for it and are willing to put in the work. And I think it comes down to a lot of work. And let's all be honest, I think there's a great element of luck at times in getting cast, sitting next to somebody at a bar or running into somebody in an elevator or at church or wherever. Or just being at the right stage in your life for a particular part that's going to set you up. I particularly think of that with people in their early teens and the parts that come along is... uh, on the waterfront, if uh, Marlon Brando. Brando is 10, 15 mm-hmm. years older when that exactly. movie is written, Very good example. he's not playing that role. You know? I do work frequently with a woman out here named Maurice Tobias. Her nickname is The Voice Whisperer, and she's a legend. Yeah, she's a legend. I just did a working weekend workshop with her a few months ago, and there were maybe 12, 14 of us. It was like a Zoom thing. And one of the exercises she did was to give all of us the same piece of copy ahead of time and have us record it and send it to her engineer. So one of the first things she does in this weekend get-together is to play back all 16 of our spots. They're the exact same pieces of copy. It's 16 guys reading the exact same piece of copy. This sounds boastful, and I don't mean it to be. You could have put any one of those guys' reads on the air, and it would have been perfect. Mm -hmm. They were all fantastic. They were all different, Mm -hmm. but they were fantastic. So at the end of this playback of the 16 MP3 files, she says, I wanted you guys to hear this because this is what casting directors and producers are up against every single day. Imagine if they've sent this audition out to 50 people. They're now sitting, listening to 50 people. What gives you the advantage? And I often think of something that Chuck said to me years ago when he was talking about teaching voiceover, that your voice might be the most unbelievable piece of pineapple upside down cake in the world. But that particular day, that creative director or producer is just looking for a little dish of vanilla soft serve. That's all he wants. And I think of that frequently because I hear listening so closely to spots on TV, on radio, online, frequently find myself thinking, why did they go with that person? Or hearing something and thinking, yeah, I can see why he got that job, why she got that job. That was an amazing piece of copy, and they did a great job with it. Chuck, do you remember Want to Get Away? (laughs) You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Of course. First of all, that could have been you. That could have been any of us. That could have been any of thousands Uh of people who have paid their dues and know what they're doing. But it wasn't. It was that guy. What's his name, Lens? Do you know I who don't. did that one? Gosh, I don't. I know his name. It was Doug Ballard who was, uh, you are now free to move about right. the country. And that, now he lives in <laughs> Ireland in a castle, I believe. Yeah. And I'm not kidding. That was essentially early <laughs> retirement for him. Because it was on every single Southwest commercial. The money just ticks up. So it's like yeah, the, the residuals. Cost. It just keeps you know rolling over. But Lindsay, you said something very interesting about that. When I taught, I do the same thing. I have everybody read the same copy. But what I do is I have them pick someone, you know, like I will talk to them. I taught for over 20 plus years and I've done this exercise every single time. I don't say, you know, well, is it Lindsay? Is it Mike? Is it Chuck? Because it obviously would be Chuck. But I'd cast you, no, damn I'm it. Just kidding. Obviously. obviously. Uh, but uh, obviously. obviously. Thanks, buddy. Clearly. I think I come in third out of these voices, honestly. But uh, fourth. But let me just say <laughs> that room. what I would say to them: just tell me, is it a male or a female? You got to pick somebody. Is it a male or a female? And I would go around, and even in the classes when I only had one female 
or one male. And there were classes that went like that, a class of like 15, 20 people. I still got different answers for that. Because I tell the story of the home base campaign that I had where where uh, six weeks in or however long it was, and the producer says, hey, did I ever tell you how you got this job? No. And he says, yeah, we played the final callback CD for the client. And he said, they're all pretty good. Just go with the wow. first guy. And I happened to be the first <laughs> wow. guy. Yeah. This yeah. is why we tell people, this is part of the reason I tell people, look, don't do this. Mm-hmm. The main reason is if you take my advice and don't do it, well, then you never should have done it in the first place. Don't take my advice. You've got to want it badly enough to ignore advice from the likes of me. But secondly, you really and truly need to realize that unlike, say, a skilled trade, you can master this craft. You can become as good at it as you can possibly get, which is good enough to prosper for Mm -hmm. real. And you can still fall flat on your face Mm -hmm. and you can still spend 30 years on your face, Mm -hmm. right? It's not fair or just. It's fun if you get your kicks with a little bit of risk it's great, but it's not a yeah. fair or just vocation if you look at it through the lens of if you work hard, show up early, stay late, and take all the classes, nobody's promising you a rose garden. And Absolutely. in this day and age, you have got to understand. I feel like it's harder for people, Lindsay, than it's ever been before to get their heads around the, uh, dare I say, the inequity. Of that I couldn't agree more. It's uh, one of the reasons it's that way is that there's such a proliferation of non-union work and increasingly larger and larger production companies being willing to go with non-union work. I think that's made it difficult. Technology with a decent mm-hmm. microphone and even a free app on your laptop and some bed sheets in a linen closet, you can turn out a pretty <laughs> darn good sounding piece of audio. And the number of jobs that I know the three of us have done in hotel rooms, under the bedspread or in the closet between jackets, <laughs> puffy jackets, the things we have jury rigged in order to do a session or an audition. Um, Tell me your best one. Best one would be my buddy, actually, who's been on the show, Paul Penalino, in his previous apartment mm-hmm. in the Upper West Side of New York. I was doing a session for CNBC. There was a fair bit of outside noise, but I went into his coat closet and shut the door, and I was in between his New York Yankees jacket and my (laughs) blue blazer, uh, holding my iPad and a flashlight and my Apogee mic. I did the session, emailed it to the client at CNBC, Lisa Thaler, fantastic producer, and she calls back 10 minutes later, and she said, this sounds really good. Where are you? And I, I said, I'm on 69th and Columbus. I'm in the closet. In my friend's coat closet. Is everything okay? And she said, yeah, no offense. This sounds better than your home studio. <laughs> so uh, I've done auditions in the back of rental cars, numerous hotel rooms. Cars are good. I actually, one good. odd story that only VO people could relate to, a friend of mine who was at a convention in Las Vegas built a giant pillow fort with the extra mattress of his, the queen size bed in his room, goes down to work out at the gym, comes back, his key won't get him into the room. He goes down to the front desk and the woman says, oh, security wants to talk to you. And the manager brings him over to the head of security who says, let's go up to your room. Housekeeping had gone into his what room, the seen the mattress against the window, and bed sheets piled up, and thought, "Is this like a, a mass shooting waiting to happen?" And he pulls out his bag yeah. of gear and explains, "I do this uh, for a living, and there are quite a few other VO guys in the hotel, so you might want to be on the lookout for this kind of thing." Plus, I'm taking kidneys out of drifters and selling them on the black market, yeah. so I'd appreciate a little don't privacy. bathtub, whatever you do. But only until I get there. (laughs) Chuck, do you remember I pulled you into the Ford business years ago? Remember you had to, I guess you had to audition or prove yourself to somebody. Didn't Lindsay somehow help in this whole thing? Yes. Let me just say that, first of all, Lindsay's and my former agent, my former agent, I think he's still Lindsay's agent. I was a request, right, mm-hmm. for you. The copy came to the agent, and I went there thinking they're supposed to lay me down to audition for it. But I walk in, and everybody 
who's within 20 years age <laughs> on either side of me is reading this copy. My agent had handed it out to everybody. And I'm like, oh, I've got to set myself apart. So I called you and said, let me know the next time you're in a voiceover booth and we'll do a demo of these, connect via ISTN. And I knew Lindsay had one, so I asked Lindsay. And I believe the payment for said demo was getting a picture of- <laughs> And I actually have signed. two. And I, I have both of them Lindsay right here. And what I love about it is that my name is misspelled by Mike on both of them. The first one says, Lindsay, thanks for the use of your shitty studio, Mike. And the second one says, Lindsay, your studio blows, Mike Rowe. Yeah, yeah. At least he's consistent. But I saved them because I'm a huge oh, Mike oh, Rowe God. fan. Even though he can't spell your name and he uses your family to sell advertising yeah. on his podcast, yeah. now he's actually exploiting you as a guest. <laughs> oh my God, is there no end to what this guy It's all full do? circle. It's <laughs> Hakuna Matata. Mm. Hakuna Matata, whatever that is. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I was at Lindsay's home studio. You were at One Union, and we laid down like three or four of yeah. the demos we did. It was that radio and, you know, campaign for Ford, Ford, right? Yeah. And it was obvious. Yeah. <laughs> Ford yeah, and Lincoln right. Parts and Service presents. And you know, I remember I was one of the guys Rowe. that got that piece yeah. of copy earlier in the day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and oh, so no. there I am four hours later watching Chuck in my house record with you via ISDN thinking, wow, it must be nice to know Mike Rowe. Well, yeah, crap. I guess I should have done that with yeah. everybody in the interest of fairness. But you know, not. Mike, going back for just a second to what you were saying about mm -hmm. how hard this is, I remember I was at Disney in attractions in marketing and on a pretty good career track. Things were going well. It was a great job. I was actually had an office at Disneyland over Main Street, over the Lincoln Theater. This is before your VO career? Correct. And then realizing that I was on track to probably, if I was lucky, continue moving up within the Disney company, but also being aware of a passion for voiceover. And I think I was maybe 41 at the time and really wanting to do voiceover and just in bed one morning staring at the ceiling and having this realization of I would rather try voiceover and fail miserably than wake up at age 60 as a vice president somewhere in Disney thinking, I wonder if I could have made that VO thing work. And I remember calling my mom and dad and saying, I'm leaving Disney to try this. And my dad was just despondent. And I didn't know this till later. He didn't tell me till later. He said, I just thought that was one of the most stupid decisions anyone ever made in their life. I thought, why on earth? You know, my mom and dad grew up in the Depression. Why would anybody leave a good paying job with a good company? Which I get. But I am forever grateful, as difficult as it has been at times, I'm forever grateful that I took the chance. So when somebody says, I really want to do this, I certainly relate to if it's your passion and you're willing to put in the work, that passion is going to be your biggest asset without question. That is what I wanted to say about this, that the best thing that I've heard anybody say in terms of advice when asked that question that you first asked, Mike, is that if you can do anything else and be happy with your life, do it, do it. The only reason to get into voiceover or acting in general, the arts, you know, nowadays, is if you just couldn't possibly do yeah, anything. Yeah, if you can't else. not do it. It's like mm -hmm. writing. I think the first time I heard that was from a pretty famous writer who said, look, there's only one reason to write, that being the abject failure on your part to do anything else at all. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. it. It's not enough to love it. It's not enough to want to do it. It's not even enough to be really good at it. It has to be something else, a compulsion, an affliction, a sickness. Yeah. <laughs> you said it earlier, Lindsay. It's a very different thing to talk to somebody who's crossing the Rubicon, burning the bridge behind mm -hmm. them, and saying goodbye to the kind of job you described. But tell me, did you do that or did you put a toe in the water? 
Did you hedge your bets for a time? Or did you actually just walk away from that gig, get an agent, and go straight into the uh, maelstrom? It was kind of a mix. I continued to do freelance work at Disney and other studios doing electronic press kits, you know, behind the scenes making of for movies and TV shows. And that in itself was a good business. It was lucrative and it was a lot of fun to do, but it allowed me to take classes, to work on demos, to finally get an offer from Animal Planet. I don't know if you've ever worked with Discovery, Mike. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard good things. (laughs) But that led to getting an offer from an agent, and then things took off from there. Did you know Don I certainly knew of him. I met him several times because, in fact, the studio where I was doing, this was before I had a home studio, the studio at which I was doing all of the Animal Planet sessions, which was probably three, four days a week, was one of Don's favorite studios to record in Hollywood, Mm. Davis Glick, now DGE. And he was a fantastic guy. I remember he was doing a session, I think, for TBS. It was maybe 15 minutes before my Animal Planet session. So I was just sitting with Scott, the engineer, (laughs) listening. And this producer at TBS wanted Don to sound more conversational but uh, keep the announce. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, oh, yeah, this, yeah. Is, God. What's, how, this is Don LaFontaine. How is he going to react to that? And because he was Don LaFontaine, he had the power to say, hey, buddy, those are two different things. Which do you want? <laughs> the kid said, well, I, I guess we'll just go with what you already laid down. I thought, yeah, yeah. good decision. Everybody yeah. that I knew that worked with him just sung his praises. He was a fantastic human being. I actually auditioned him once. Did you really? You're kidding. Yes. When I was working at the voice caster, he came in for a thing for Hardee's. And it was, you know, the typical in a world where it was the Don LaFontaine read. You know, yeah. he was the prototype. They brought him in. And I was like, I mean, I'm like almost embarrassed to say, you know, it's like, oh, you're the prototype for this. I didn't give him any direction. I just hit record. He read it once. It was flawless. It could have gone on air right from that. And I said, uh, is there anything else you want to do? And he said, nope. And I go, I think we're good. He's like, yep, great. Good to see you. Yeah. And that was it. Smart yeah. man. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. A buddy of mine Don in, is... in two... Oh, go ahead, Mike. No, no, no. Good. You're the guest. I'll be back here next <laughs> week, no matter what happens. A good friend of mine, Jim Brady, owns a studio in Tucson. And Gene Hackman was shooting, I think, was it The Quick and the Dead with Sharon Stone? Uh-huh. He was the voice of... Um, United Airlines at the time. United Airlines, come fly the friendly skies. So this is pre-ISDN, pre-internet. This is recording to what was called DAT, D-A-T, remember digital audio tape? And the agency is in New York. Gene is in Tucson shooting. They call Gene's manager. We have to have him record this today. Well, he's filming till six o'clock, but we could do it tonight. Gene Hackman shows up at Jim's studio, 7 o'clock at night, town car pulls up. Hackman comes in, says, let's get this over with. This is phone patch days, so he's listening to a producer in New York in his headset. He gives the read one time. The kid's maybe 20, 24 years old. Says, that's great, Mr. Hackman. Could we do it another time? And this time, (laughs) could you? Hackman takes the note, does a second take. Kid says, that's great. Could we do one more? And this time, could you? Hackman does a third take. And uh, the kid says, that was great. If we could do one more. And Hackman takes off his headphones and says, no, you got what you need. Puts his headphones down on the copy stand, goes out, town car, <clears throat> zooms off. And the kid producer's talking to my buddy, the studio owner, Jim, saying, is Mr. Hackman still there? <laughs> no, Mr. Hackman has no, left he's... the building. <laughs> you got three to work with. I think you're good. I've never done that. People need to understand. I mean, look, if this all sounds crazy to you guys listening, you just have to put yourself in the place of a traditional VO actor who has spent a lifetime taking direction. And I don't want to overstep or sound ungrateful, but taking poor direction, (laughs) taking direction from people who don't really understand what they want, but believe they'll Mm. know it when they hear it. Don LaFontaine, who we've been talking about, probably influenced more voiceover reads than anybody else. He's a big part of the reason why I'm in the business. And I only met him once, but I brought him up, Lindsay, because like you, he was an executive over at Paramount, I think. Right. He was producing 
promos. This yeah. is the kind of randomness I'm talking about, folks. This is why this business is such a goat rodeo, because the greatest voiceover artist of recent memory was an executive. And the guy he booked to come up and read the trailer for Paramount, this is back in the very early 80s, I think, didn't show. So Don did it. And he did it the way Don did it. In a yeah. world, one man, yeah. and so forth. And just like that, right, like your career, he's done doing what he was doing, and now he's doing this. And yeah. suddenly, thousands are imitating, and even more are listening and saying to themselves, yeah, I could, I could do, do that. that. Yeah. And the truth is, they probably you probably can. could. <laughs> mm -hmm. You probably yeah. could, but it doesn't you matter. Yeah. That's the hell of yeah. it. You think yeah. the fact that you can do it qualifies you, and it does to a degree, but it guarantees you a hat full of rain. Nothing. Absolutely. I got a nice voice. Absolutely. People tell me I should do voiceover. It's kind of like saying, you know, I'm seven foot two. People tell me I should play basketball. It's like, okay. I should play yeah. pro ball. I mean, you could. Yeah. You could, yeah, yeah. but it's no guarantee. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Go ahead. And Chuck, to his credit, Mike, I don't even know if you're aware of this, Chuck actually continued to do work with an entity that I stopped working with years ago because I could no longer handle the direction that I was getting during sessions. When my agent called to book me, I just said, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. Wow. So Chuck, you picked <laughs> oh, up the yeah. scraps. I, I love it. I you think know I, who it is. I don't want to I say because I, I still client. work for them. So yeah, let's not say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My buddy Paul Penalino likes to say, guys, we're not making the Godfather when they're doing production and the audio guys saying, could we go back? I think I could tweak those two frames and make that a little bit. Guys, we're not making the Godfather. We're fine. This is Rip and Reed. This will be on a satellite in 30 minutes. Let's get this done. And that mentality of we're making the Godfather when you're doing a promo for whomever, <laughs> where the line that you're being asked to do over and over is, now available on iTunes. Yeah. You know, let's spend 15 minutes on that line. It's like, no, no, we don't. But this we is the thing, Lindsay. Look, Chuck and I fight about this all of the time because, well, because we both care <laughs> deeply about what we do in different ways. And sure. so what happens is, Paul's right. The collective we are not making The Godfather, but the individuals are. And this is why, ultimately, I wound up at Discovery. This is why I wound up in nonfiction on a show like Dirty Jobs, because on that show, I was able to eliminate the second take mm -hmm. because it was up to me. And I was able to tell my director of photography and my audio guy and the field producer, all of whom I love, I was able to say to them, guys, we're not making The Godfather. We're just following the action. And so anything that isn't take two is a performance. I don't want a performance. I want to somehow okay. capture this. It doesn't have to be great, but it only works if everybody's on the same page. So on any given day, you know, Chuck might see something in this podcast that's not 100% right. And he's making the godfather in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, right? A good point. And so yeah. I've got a very modest organization filled with people who are very smart, who understand that collectively, we're not making the godfather. But individually, God help me, they're all Francis Ford Coppola, every right. one of them. Right. And they're making The Godfather. Yeah, yeah. Good on you. Good on you. God help me. Well put. <laughs> so what's next? Your website. I'm trying to find a way to offer some shameless pluggery, but you are thatvoguy.com. And Dot com. this is how you're, I mean, you're not just paying this the bills. This is how bills, I'm paying the bills. Killing it. Yeah. This is I'm it. grateful to God. Grateful to God for the work. My wife, previously known as Nancy Johnson, does the same thing for a living, which our financial advisor, when we first started working with him years ago, said, I got to tell you, this is a really stupid arrangement <laughs> that you are both right. in the same line of work that is so precarious. I don't see Let's how this could possibly work. Let's put all the key executives <laughs> on the same plane. Everybody on. It's going to be fine. Yeah. So... NanMcNamara.com. There's my shameless plug for my wife. We actually have gotten to the point where we have now not one but two studios 
with ISDN and Source Connect in the house, which when I first contemplated it, thought that's sort of like saying, hey, I know we've got one kitchen. I'm thinking of putting in a second <laughs> kitchen in the house. No, or, why not? In case we both want to let them know you're serious. Time, right? In case you want to I'm going to add yeah. a second yeah. pool. A second pool. A second built-in pool next to the pool in the backyard. But the number of times that we have ended up doing auditions or sessions simultaneously is remarkable to me. And I'm grateful to be able to do that. It's really a blessing. Well, I'm happy for you because, as you might recall, that first shitty studio kind of blew. (laughs) (laughs) That was Chuck's read, I would remind you. The audio quality itself was fine. It was excellent. Yeah. Truly excellent. Uh, With your permission, I think I want to call this episode, We're Not Making the Godfather. And with that in mind, we can probably land the plane here safely. Let me just say thank you. Thank you for being a schnebly. Thank you for sharing the history of your family with us and allowing me to do it here on the podcast and for suggesting one of my favorite episodes and for hanging out for an hour, saying whatever it was you've been saying in that distinctive (laughs) yet credible, crisp, well-modulated baritone. (laughs) Non-announcery. But not too casual. Not too casual. (laughs) Like you're talking to Chuck and Mike over the back fence. Yeah, except Chuck and Mike are really famous now and, <laughs> and in Chuck's love with got the sound of their own screen. voices. <laughs> and yeah, like he's, talk to me like the world is wrapped in a pink windsock, and then I think we'll be on something. with a little weight, up with a little down, in with a little out. Yeah. Yeah. Hired with a little shave, fired. Shave off six seconds, but don't sound yeah, faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay Schnebly, the name says it all, thatvoguy.com. Thank you, brother. Thank you, gentlemen. Be well.